I invite you to turn with me in the book of praise to page 556, 556, where we find the church's confession concerning the meaning of the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment is, as mentioned, you shall not commit adultery. And there the church summarizes what the Bible teaches on this matter. Question 108, what does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, He forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Following the proclamation of the gospel, we'll sing the companion psalm to 127, namely 128, which also speaks of God's blessing over married folk. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we move along in this second table of the law, we come to this seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. This commandment takes one of the most obvious and odious and hurtful sexual sins, namely the sin of breaking faith with your spouse of breaking trust and unity with him or her and physically uniting yourself to another person, God uses that sin to bring to our attention the whole part of our life that involves our sexuality. We know that God is forbidding more than just this single act, for it is the Lord Jesus Himself who said in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So our Savior, as He did with a number of other commandments, He teaches us to look beneath the surface to understand the deeper intention and purpose also of this particular commandment. And the purpose of the seventh commandment is to teach us to have the utmost respect and esteem for God's gift of sexuality. Sexual intimacy is a wonderful thing, and the desire to engage in sexual activity is a powerful force in human life. We can see it all around us if we didn't have to, if we needed proof for that, but it's all around us in our society. It's within us, and like with all powerful forces, if we don't find a way to control it and use it as God intended, that force will end up controlling us, and we'll soon find ourselves involved in all sorts of things which God hates. 
So as Christians, we are to honor sexuality in all stages of life, younger or older. We are to honor sexuality in all standings of life, whether we're married or whether we're single. As the Catechism puts it, we must live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. And so this afternoon, we will look to our Savior Jesus Christ and see how He honored sexuality, both in His conduct and in His teaching. And to do that, I bring you this word of the Lord, follow Jesus in honoring sexuality. Follow Jesus in honoring sexuality. We'll see two things, sexuality and marriage, and then sexuality and singleness. You might wonder how Jesus, by His conduct, could have honored sexuality within marriage when He Himself was never married. He certainly taught about the subject, as we hope to see in a few moments, but did Jesus ever show honor for the coming together of man and wife in holy marriage? Did He ever show that by His actions? Well, yes, He did. When you start to think about His ministry, we know that Jesus chose 12 men to be His disciples, His closest followers, and when He did so, He did not hesitate to choose at least one who was married, Peter. We know Peter was married because Jesus at a certain point healed Jesus, uh, Peter's mother-in-law. So if being married was some kind of problem to Jesus, if it was seen to interfere with the work that the disciples would be doing, if being a Christian or a leader in the church demanded that a person be unmarried, Jesus would not have selected Peter. And Peter was not the only apostle married. Paul mentions this as a normal thing in 1 Corinthians 9. He's arguing about certain rights that apostles have, and then he says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, James and Judas, and Cephas, which is another name for Peter. So this was a common thing even among the leaders of the early church, hand-selected by the Lord Jesus. And apart from that, many married persons were called to come to faith in Jesus. They were called to serve in His kingdom. None were asked to give up their marital status. You can also think of the people that Jesus helped. Think of that married couple, Jairus and his wife, who had a daughter who had, had, uh, was very, very sick and in fact died. Jesus came to their home and raised that daughter to life and restored her to her father and mother. And perhaps the most clear way in which Jesus honored the, the gift of marriage, including the aspect of sexual intimacy, was by attending that wedding feast at Cana. You saw that a little while ago in the morning preaching, where He changed water into wine to spare that, the newlyweds' humiliation. You don't do that unless you consider the state of marriage an honorable thing. So the Lord Jesus clearly respected marriage, which, of course, makes total sense, right? I mean, Jesus, we've seen that from John's gospel, Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. He's God on earth. Jesus is the God who was there in the beginning creating mankind, male and female. Jesus is 
together with the Father and the Spirit, the God who brought male and female together, Adam and Eve, in the first marriage ceremony. So Jesus could not possibly think differently about marriage than the Creator back in Genesis, for Jesus is the Creator. And this is certainly what His teaching shows as well, as we read it from Matthew 19. You might want to turn there for a few moments, hope to deal with a few of those verses, Matthew 19. The Pharisees, in this passage, as they often did, they approached Jesus with a question, kind of a trick question. They want to try to trap Him, to discredit Him in some way. So they ask Him about divorce and whether it's lawful for a husband to divorce his wife for just any reason. That's their question. And among the Jews, this was a hotly debated topic. Divorce itself was not considered controversial among the Jews as long as it was for legal reasons. So the question of the Pharisees is, Jesus, tell us, what are those legal reasons? Almost any answer to that question was sure to get Jesus in hot water with one group or another because certain groups of of the Jews, they said, well, it only could be for these reasons. And others said, no, no, only for these reasons. And there were other groups with their own reasons. So they figured we're going to get Jesus trapped here. But the Lord, of course, cannot be trapped because His wisdom always trumps the cleverness of man. And instead of getting tangled up in the technicalities and legalistic thinking of the Pharisees, Jesus turns it around and He goes to the root of the issue. He reminds the Pharisees of how the Creator had set things up from the beginning. He says, have you not read, verse 4, have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, we're going to pick up the thread of that argument, but I want to just pause there for a moment. Jesus is summarizing Genesis 1 and 2. God created mankind in two sexes, two genders, male and female. I'm stressing this for a moment because up until a few years ago, virtually nobody in the world would have questioned that there were only two genders. But now it needs to be clearly stated, even preached from the pulpit, because our society insists that there are, in fact, many genders, hundreds of genders. And our society is telling us, you know, you can switch genders anytime you want. The Canadian government very recently made a law forbidding anyone from counseling people against switching genders. So genders is a matter of your mindset, they say, and it has nothing to do with your biology. It's got nothing to do with X or Y chromosomes. Brothers and sisters, I I want to put this as plainly to you as I can based on the words of, of Christ and the words of Genesis. That idea that you can switch genders is a lie. It is a lie from the devil. Our Savior underlines what has always been true. God created you either male or female. Your biology determines your gender. God created you as a soul together with a body. Your physical body is as much part of you as your soul. 
as your thoughts, as your mind. Your body is not an afterthought here. It's not less than your mind. It's not something other than your true you. Mind and body, soul and flesh are one person. God created them together in one harmonious whole. And yes, it's true. The entry of sin into the world has affected and broken down that harmony between body and flesh or body and spirit. And in the corruption of that sin, there are a few who are born now without either clear male or female genitalia, just like there are a few born without other body parts. And that causes confusion for those few individuals. It causes endless heartache. Ultimately, healing for that condition will have to wait until the resurrection of the dead. And others who have a clearly male or female body, they don't always feel male or female. This can also be deeply distressing and painful for them. And we who don't have that struggle should be filled with all kinds of compassion for those who do. They call this struggle gender dysphoria. It too is a result of sin infecting us, sin that infects our feelings and thoughts. Yet the answer, brothers and sisters, is not to tell them the lie that if you feel the opposite of what your body is, of what your biology is, then that is what you must be, so go ahead and change your body to match your feelings. Go ahead and cut things off your body. Go ahead and put chemicals into your body to force your body into the gender you believe, you think, you feel yourself to be. Brothers and sisters, to do that would be to hate your neighbor. It would be to injure and maim your neighbor. It would be a sin against the sixth commandment. To do that to yourself would be to hate the person God created you to be and would leave you at war with your very own self. The Christian thing, the biblical loving thing to do is to tell people with those kinds of struggles the simple truth, tell, say it, in love. You may not feel like a male, but this is what God created you to be. Your physical body is proof. You may not feel like a female, but this is what God created you to be. Your physical body is the proof. Let's talk this through together. Don't let your feelings dictate your decisions. Your feelings are affected by sin, just like every other part of the human nature. Your physical body is part of you. It needs to be respected. And here's the good news. You can learn to live with your physical body and be happy with it. Let's get some help together. Let's, let's find some Christian counseling together. Feelings and confusion and hurt can be overcome with the truth of God's Word and the power of Christ's Spirit as those feelings become sanctified. Now, the Lord Jesus continues here in Matthew 19, and He quotes now from Genesis 2, 
treating Genesis as the historical account that it is, he quotes it in verse 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is, is taking these Pharisees right back to the beginning and he's, he's going through basic training with them, things they should have known. And he's saying God's gift of sexual union is given to one male with one female in a holding fast relationship called marriage. That verb to hold fast implies a covenant bond, a permanent lifelong marriage covenant. And once again, in light of our current society's confused thinking and perverse pronouncements concerning what sexuality is and what it's for, what marriage actually is, we need to re-emphasize the simple truth of the Bible, sexual intimacy, sexual union is only for one man and one woman, and it's only for when you enter into the covenant of marriage. God did not create one man and one man, or one female and one female. God did not bring together two of the same sex. Same sex sexual activity is the very opposite of what God intended or ever created. Gay or lesbian much less uh, gay or lesbian marriage or sexual activity. It is unnatural. It's offensive to our Creator. He calls it in Leviticus 18 an abomination. And on this point too, our society spouts the lies of Satan that homosexuality is just as acceptable, is just as normal as male-female marriage. Did you know that the Canadian government, our own Canadian government, was one of the first in the world to make same-sex marriages legal, 2005? Do you see, brothers and sisters, how Satan is hard? He's going hard after the building blocks of human society as God established them at the beginning. And he's going hard after them in Canada and the U.S. and other Western countries like Europe and Australia. We think that Satan is working hard in North Korea and in China and Putin's Russia, and no doubt he is. But are our eyes open to the lies of our own culture? We're living here. We have to fight the fight here in Canada, and the fight is on. It's coming through the ideas of our culture, and it's coming down the pipe in the laws of the land. We need to be clear-minded and we need to stand firm in the truth. And here, too, we can and should acknowledge that because we are born in sin, some may very well grow up with sinful feelings of being attracted to the same sex. That, that should be expected in a, in a world of sin. I mean, every one of us has feelings of one kind or another that are sinful, right? Just, just think of your feelings. Think of how those feelings lead us into certain sins, other kinds of sins besides sexual ones. What do we do when we have feelings that draw us into sin? We don't say, I'm going to give in to those feelings. I can't help the feelings. No, 
we say as Christians, I'm going to fight the feelings in the strength of the Spirit. The world says, if you feel this way, you must be that way. God says, if you feel that way and that way isn't in line with my word, then you're not that way. Fight it. And I'll help you fight it in the strength of my Spirit. Same as with gender dysphoria, also now with same-sex attraction, we have to analyze our feelings in light of the facts of God's Word. And we can help those who struggle to do just that, and we can encourage them to fight those feelings and embrace God's way because only God's way is good. We all have these various sinful inclinations or feelings that we have to fight, and we can help each other by seeking forgiveness in the blood of Jesus and seeking strength in the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus died to pay for and overcome these sins. He died and paid to overcome those feelings, those sinful feelings. Jesus continues. He says, the two shall become one flesh. Then he adds in verse 6, so the two are no longer, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus emphasizes one flesh. Man and woman become one flesh. Woman and woman cannot become one flesh. Man and man cannot become one flesh. They mimic. They approximate, but they are not physically united as the Creator designed it, nor are they intimate partners as God created them to be. Only a husband and wife can be that way. They're the only two that match in a complementary fashion to make a single whole. And a Christian husband and a Christian wife do this all that much more, for not only are you joined physically in sexual intimacy, and not only are you joined as covenant partners in marriage, but you are also joined spiritually as co-heirs of Christ. So there's, there's a union in Christian marriages that is threefold strong. So married brothers and sisters, let me give you this exhortation. Make good use of the gift of sexual intimacy within your marriage. And know that that sexual intimacy is a gift of the Creator, totally sanctioned by our Redeemer for use in serving our God. If you have received a marriage partner, then you have received a good gift from God, a gift in which you together serve the Lord. Together you are one. You are covenant partners in the unique relationship of marriage, so act as one in every way. Sexual intimacy is the fruit of your union. It's not the basis. The basis is those vows you made on your wedding day. Before God, you stood before God and many people and you made vows. You vowed to love and respect. You vowed to care and to assist one another in good days and bad for as long as you both shall live. So do that Fulfill your vows in the thousand little things that you all do every single day. And then your experience of sexual intimacy, then your experience of one flesh will be full and rich and satisfying for both. And God will be glorified in it.
So our Savior, by reviewing and summarizing and articulating what Genesis teaches about sex, He approves, He commends, and even commands sexual intimacy within marriage. Well, that's all well and good for married people, you say. What then is left for singles? How are they meant to honor sexuality? Well, in this too, we may follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For Jesus Himself never married, and one of His most significant missionaries and apostles was also single, Paul. So while Jesus certainly welcomed the married and He honored marriage, He also made clear that in His kingdom there is an equally honorable place for the unmarried. There is an equally honorable place for those to whom God has given the gift of being single for His sake. Singleness is indeed a gift. Being content to be a single Christian is even an unusual or uncommon gift from God, which needs to be understood and treated with respect in its proper place. Its uncommonness comes out in what Jesus alludes to and quotes from in Genesis 2. We've seen this in some recent sermons on those passages, so we can be brief here, in the beginning, it was the Creator's design that mankind created male and female, and that pairs of male and female should come together in marriage. The creation mandate includes the command to multiply and have children, something that can only be done when male and female come together in marriage. So the marriage of Adam and Eve was not only the first marriage, but it was a model. It was an example of how future generations were meant to act. So when you read Genesis 1 and 2, by the end of the second chapter, in a world without sin, the expectation is that every male and every female will in some way find a counterpart of the opposite sex, they will be joined together in a marriage covenant, and they will bear offspring to carry on with the creation mandate. Singleness is not part of God's original creation design. But now, God does give singleness a place. He gives it a distinguished, respectable, and even highly admirable gift in a world that's corrupted by sin. Singleness in the service of God is a tremendous blessing for the church, and it's something that we as church need to realize and recognize more readily than we probably have in the past. Jesus brings this out in the response to the disciples' incredulous answer to, to Jesus' teaching on divorce. We find that in verses 10 through 12 of Matthew 19. The disciples, you have to understand, they grew up in this, this Jewish culture that not only tolerated divorce based on Deuteronomy 24 where Moses gave sanction uh, to divorcing one's wife. So this, this whole Jewish culture, they, they lived with divorce, and apparently in Jesus' day, it was a rampant thing. It was a recognized, quote-unquote, escape valve for the husband. Wives couldn't divorce their husbands, but, uh, but a husband could divorce his wife. And if the wife 
for almost any reason was not satisfying the man, the husband, he could get out of the marriage. There was, there was ways you could, you could provide a, an excuse or another and you could divorce your wife. But Jesus says it was not that way from the beginning. That's not how God set it up. That's not God's intention. What God has joined together, let man not separate. And he puts up a cold blanket on that whole atmosphere of divorce among the Jews. Well, he was answering the Pharisees, but the disciples heard his reply, and they are aghast. They say to the Lord, if such is the case of a man with a wife, with his wife, it is better not to marry. Why would they say that? Well, let's try to put ourselves in their mind. The disciples are saying to Jesus, if there is no escape clause to marriage, it's better not to get married at all, isn't it? Just like the Pharisees and the Jewish men generally, they were looking at marriage and singleness from a selfish point of view. If marriage is going to tie me down, no matter what, how much I don't like it, well, it's better I stay single. At least then I can do what I want. At least then I am free. There's very much a selfish perspective to the disciples' reply. And that sounds an awful lot like Canada today, doesn't it? 21st century Canadian thinking would echo that selfishness. I mean, everywhere marriage is discouraged in our culture... And being, quote, free is the way to go. And by that is meant single. That leaves you flexible. It leaves you available. It leaves you accessible according to your whatever you want. You can have sex with others or not. You can choose to have a romantic relationship which includes sexual intimacy. Or you can choose a casual hookup. Or you can just go with friends with benefits. Being single is free. It's the life in Canada. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, does that kind of thinking affect also our young people sometimes? No doubt we know that having sex outside of marriage is a sin. We, we hear that seventh commandment every Sunday. We have it taught to us more regularly. But still, that other part of the Canadian dream the thought of being single, that leaves me, even as a Christian, a lot of freedom. And that's attractive. I can go places. I can do things. I can enjoy life the way I want without having to answer to a spouse, without having to be responsible for another person, let alone children. Do our young adults think that marriage involves maybe too much sacrifice? that it limits my choices, that it would, putting, it would mean putting my desires and wishes to the side to work things out with my marriage partner. And I'd rather not have to do that. The single life seems very, very attractive, does it not? But, beloved, that kind of single life is not at all what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a very particular single life, a single life of dedicated service to others, not a life of dedicated service to oneself, 
That's the point of these eunuch analogies. Very unusual to read about eunuchs in this fashion. A eunuch, after all, is a man who has been castrated, either partially in the removal of only the testicles or fully castrated where there's no sexual organ at all. Being a eunuch meant that one had no sex drive and therefore ordinarily no ability to produce, to engage in, in sexual intercourse or to produce children. For that reason, they almost, eunuchs almost never married. Also, because they had no testosterone in their bodies, such men were often less prone to rage and unpredictable behavior. They were known to be more mild-mannered and dependable. So, eunuchs were used in the ancient world as court officials and especially as protectors of the king's harem because such a man would not ever think to be interested in those women. Well, two things stand out in Jesus' use of this analogy. Eunuchs were always an exception to the norm. Most men had their, sexual, their sexuality fully intact and desired to be married. Second, especially within Israel, the concept of being castrated, and I think that'll be true among us too, it was horrible to contemplate, and it was considered most undesirable for such a person was not allowed to even enter the temple. God forbade that in the laws of Moses. So eunuchs were not looked upon favorably. They were used by many Gentile kingdoms, but they were not regularly used within Israel. So when, Jew, when, when Jesus then speaks of eunuchs, and you have to kind of put yourself in the, in the minds of the disciples, in the shoes of the disciples, when He chooses this, this repulsive and negative example of a eunuch and then turns it around as a positive for the disciples to take an example from, it had absolute shock value. Their jaws would have hit the floor. How can you think and use eunuchs positively? Jesus starts off in verse 11 with a warning of sorts. He says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So he's responding to the disciples in verse 10. And he's basically saying to the disciples, you know, you're partly right. In some cases, it is better not to marry not for the reasons you think, disciples. And Jesus adds, it only applies to those to whom it has been given. So right here in those words, Jesus confirms that marriage is, is the normal pattern for men and women. It's something good and natural and desirable. And yet He also stakes the claim, that divine claim, that God Himself gifts some to stay unmarried, and that's got to be respected. That's an exception to the norm of creation, but it's a good exception because it's given by God and it serves God's purpose in this fallen world. Jesus is talking about life in this fallen world. That's where the gift of singleness comes into play. That's evident also from the example he chose, the example of eunuchs. Eunuchs only are a thing in a fallen world, right? 
a sinful world. I mean, Jesus gives two examples. Some eunuchs, he says, are born that way. Some are born without the male sex organ. Well, that only happens because of sin, the corruption that we brought into the world. And certainly in Bible times, that would have made them ineligible for marriage because they could not father children. Jesus gives a second example. Other eunuchs, he says, are made so by men. So this was a thing in the Gentile kingdoms by way of castration. Some men were forced into this permanent life of singleness so that they could further be forced into service in the king's court. They had no choice in the matter. You didn't sign up to become a eunuch. This also happens because of the fall into sin, where powerful people force others to do their will. In this, time, in this case, a very horrendous thing. These two examples show the, the regrettable and lamentable results of the fall into sin. And then Jesus does something astounding. He turns the tables by adding a third example in which a eunuch is suddenly now a most commendable thing. He says, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Jesus knows this is a hard saying. It's not for everybody to become a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He takes the analogy, the real-life analogy of a eunuch, and he morphs it into a metaphor in this third example. There are some believers, he's saying, some godly servants of God who have made themselves eunuchs not by way of physical castration, you understand. Jesus is not talking about and commending the the, the physical castration of oneself, but they have made themselves eunuchs by way of self-denial, by the way of turning away from the pursuit of marriage, by turning away from the desire for sexual union that comes with marriage, to instead choosing the single life. And notice, notice, notice the reason for choosing the single life. Jesus says, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven... In other words, for the sake of Jesus Himself, for the sake of following Christ, a person denies that natural inclination toward marriage and embraces singleness so that he or she may offer a more dedicated, focused, single-minded service to the Lord God. It's not for self-service, it's for divine service. That's where the single life is coming from. Do you see, brothers and sisters, how totally unselfish that is and how totally opposite it is from what the disciples were thinking and what the world around us today is thinking? And let's face it, how opposite it is to our own natural instincts. That's why Jesus adds, let the one who is able to receive this receive it. The single life of self-denial, it's not for everybody. It's a gift from above. Even as Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 7, but each has his own gift from God, and that's in the context of singleness or marriage, one of one kind, one of another. 
What is your gift, brothers and sisters? If you are attracted to the single life, is it because you want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ more fully? Or is it because you want to serve yourself? And are you content to be single without sexual intimacy? And for us as parents of single children, for us as a congregation with single members, let's be very, very careful. Let's be very, very gentle and very understanding of their situation. Single brothers and single sisters may already know in their heart what they desire. They may have, so to speak, worked it out with the Lord, whether marriage or singleness. And if they have desired either of those gifts for godly reasons, then let's encourage them in that. And if they have the gift of being content as a single person who wants to serve the Lord in any way that he or she can, let's support them in that. There may well be other single members who are unsure of what they would like, of where the Lord is calling them. They might be single but not liking it. Or they may be struggling to be content. That's hard when you don't know what God's will is for your life. Let's, let's have compassion. Let, let's pray with them and for them that the Lord would make His will known to them, that they would find contentment. But let us not make them feel like marriage is superior to being single, single in the Lord's service, and that if only they were married, their problems would be solved. The sanctified single life in service of the kingdom of God is as dignified and acceptable and pleasing to the Lord as sanctified marriage in service to the Lord. The whole ministry of Jesus teaches us this, doesn't it? He denied Himself at every turn for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He remained a single man the Bible says elsewhere, Hebrews, that he was tempted in every way. So there must have also been sexual temptation for the Lord. And we certainly know, had he desired to, he could have married. He could have had those sexual experiences, but he denied himself. That was not a fit for his task in the kingdom of heaven. He remained a single man in his earthly pilgrimage so that he could become the husband of the church, his bride in heavenly glory. He made every sacrifice for his bride, didn't he? For you and for me to, to wash us from the guilt of also every sexual sin we've ever committed, to also cleanse us from every offense against our spouse. Accept that grace that He offers, brothers and sisters, in repentance and, and faith and know the freedom of forgiveness. Sexual sin can make you feel so dirty. But the blood of Jesus washes us so clean. 
whiter than snow. And having that washing go, whether married or single, go and follow Jesus in honoring sexuality by doing everything you do for the sake of His kingdom. Amen.